You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, I'm uh, back again with my friend George Sarris, and we're continuing the conversation that we started last time. And George, you uh, you told your we covered your pretty much your your whole life story last time, and and now what we're going to do this time is we're going to really get into the into the Bible and your understanding of just who God is. So can we just kind of can we just kind of start there with who you understand God to be and and how that maybe led you to look at the Bible and and find and find that in the Bible. That'd be great. And uh, thank you once again, David, for the privilege of being able to talk with you about this. Uh, it is truly exciting to be able to share with other people um, how good God is. In fact, it's kind of interesting. My my original title for my book was "Is God Good." Uh-huh. That was the original title. And uh, my wife said, yeah, but George, if you say that, nobody knows what it's all about. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to change it and it became yeah. heaven's doors uh, wider than you ever believed. Um, right. But that was the original idea because I think the key really for me is the doctrine of God. It was interesting when I um, could not continue at the one church that uh, we had been a part of for 20 years um, because of the doctrinal position that I took. Um, we kind of went around for a while. And then my daughter, uh, one Epiphany Sunday, uh, it was January 6th, a uh, number of years ago, she said, mm-hmm. well, Dad, why don't you come to this uh, church over here? And I thought, well, might as well. Who cares? I mean, you know, nobody else likes me, so <laughs> we can go there and see what happens. George, that's sad. Anyway, <laughs> well, it was sort of like that. I mean, I felt like I was a, a person who wanted to serve God, but I couldn't go to church. It was like, wow, if I go into these churches, because everybody knew who I was and what was going mm-hmm. on, because it's you know, a relatively small area. and um, But I thought, okay, that's the way it goes. Anyway, so I went to this church, and uh, after the um, service was over, the pastor just said, you know, where are you from? And why are you here? And uh, so I thought, I might as well just tell him. So I told him that uh, what had happened briefly. And he said, uh, I have never heard that perspective from a biblical basis. Hmm. I'd love to talk to you about that. I mean, he was just shocked. He said, I've heard a lot of that from liberal uh, theologians, but I've never heard that based on a biblical focus, but I would love to talk to you about that. So I was yeah. still in the process of writing my book at the time. And um, so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll read 20 pages at a time and then we can sit down and talk about it. So we did. And uh, we met on several occasions, and we would talk for two to three hours at a time. And he asked wow. very perceptive questions, and uh, he was very interested in what was going on. And then he said to me one time, he said, you know, George, I think the bottom line is this is the doctrine of God. Who yeah. is God? And I thought, wow, that's exactly right. It's really who is God. If God is all-powerful, if he's all-wise, if he's all-loving and good— then how could you come up with any other idea? I mean, the idea that God is partial, that he decides to favor some people over others, no, that's not who God is. That's not the God of the Bible. 
Does yeah. he change? Does he uh, decide to love people while they're still here on earth? And he says to, uh, when he's on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, we're supposed to love our enemies while we're here on earth. But then once we die, whoosh, that's gone and God yeah. changes. And now he hates us and he inflicts pain forever and ever. No, that's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. Is he weak, desiring to save everyone, but ultimately not able to do that? Or is he cruel? able to save everyone, but chooses in the last analysis, now I'm only going to save some. Right. That's kind no, of the God of the, God August, the, the Augustinian or the Calvinist tradition was that God is all powerful and able to do anything, but just doesn't want to save all. That's correct. And, uh, and then the other one is the Arminian, which is God wants to save all, but he's not able to, you know, he's weak. So I thought, no, that's not what Scripture teaches about who God is. God is all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-loving, and he's good. So how else could you come up with any other idea? But it was really interesting because it was that pastor that, that just mentioned it as the doctrine of God that really kind of mm -hmm. said, yeah, that's exactly what it's all about. And so when you really get down to it, that's what my book is about. That's what this view is all about. It's the doctrine of God. Is God good? And the answer is, yes, he is. Is God powerful? The answer is, yes, he is. Is God able to save all mankind? Yes. Does he want to save all mankind? Yes. Will he save all mankind? Yes. In fact, it was interesting in my, um, my recent little booklet, I think maybe in my, my actual book as well, but I mentioned a conversation that I had with a, a very friendly conversation, by the way, very positive conversation uh -huh. with a theologian a number of years ago. We were at a conference. He said uh, that he believed that God was able to save all mankind, and he believed right. that God wanted to save all mankind, but he uh -huh. decided that, well, I, I can't really believe that he will because there may be some people who decide forever to resist God. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, it's, that's definitely theoretically possible, but I said, it's not going to happen because scripture specifically says that at the end of time, every knee will freely and joyfully bow, and every tongue will freely and joyfully confess that Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, the word in that um, section about confess is a word that means to give praise, to, to freely yeah. and joyfully um, give praise. And so it tells you what's going to happen. Every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow before the Lord uh, God of heaven and earth, and freely and joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I said, you know, God is not only able, he's not only willing, he will actually accomplish all that he intends to accomplish. And the idea there is that, is that God is not overriding people's free will. It's that when God finally <clears throat> clears away all of the misunderstandings and the person sees themselves for who they truly are, and they see God for who God truly is, you know, th then um, it's kind of like that moment of in the parable of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes home and he realizes for the first time who his father really is, that his father has right. really loved him the whole time. And so it, it's not, um, there's nothing, it's, it's just, it's just, once that full recognition happens, it's not like the father had to order him 
it was he came he came home and then he realized that his father was better than he'd ever believed. Absolutely. I think that's a really key thing. Also, I think it's important for us to keep in mind, too, that there is no such thing as absolute free will that we have. We don't. I mean, I don't, I did not decide when I would be born. Mm-hmm. I didn't decide if I was going to be male or female. I didn't decide who my parents would be or who my brother would be. I didn't decide where I would be uh, living and being born. I'm not sure if I mentioned that just a minute ago, but um, my ancestors were from Greece on both my mother and my father's side. If it weren't for the courage and the adventurous spirit of both my grandfather and my grandmother, I'd be on a, a mountain out in, in Greece herding sheep, you know, instead of being over here. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that we don't have control over that are um, instrumental in the decisions that we make. So God has designed things so that people will be in the best position for them to respond to what his message is. And he is, just like you said with the prodigal father or the prodigal son, uh, the right. father is able to wait as long as necessary until his son understands that his lifestyle has led to complete misery and that his father really does love him. But we don't have that absolute free will that some people say, well, you know, somebody's got a free will. Well, there's nothing that is absolute like that. I have five children. We live on a busy street. When my kids were small, I allowed them, we have a a large field in the back of our house. Mm -hmm. I allowed them to play all that they wanted to in that field in the back, and even to walk out in certain parts in the front of our house but I didn't allow them to run into the road and get hit by a car. There was a a place where I put a limit on what their free will would allow them to do. I wasn't going to allow them to be destroyed, killed because of some foolish decision that they made. Well, the same thing with God. He has placed certain limits on who we are and where we are and what we're doing. And one of the limits is he's not going to allow us to get into a position where we're going to experience endless conscious misery. Right. God, God, God doesn't allow us to, God draws a line and doesn't allow us to get uh, beyond what is recoverable. But the thing that's amazing about that is when we see the incredible evil that people descend to in this world, mm. then it's hard for us to imagine, well, God allowed that, but you know, you, God knows how to fix even God can fix that or or the victims that are so deeply wounded. You know, how can God how can God heal all of all of those deep wounds? Yeah, that that's a really good good point. And I think Tom Talbot puts it the best. He says, uh, God gives freedom up to certain points, and uh that point is what you just said, recoverable. It, from mm-hmm. divine power and wisdom can recover all of that. And, you know, even death, by the way, one of the things I um, put in my book, in fact, I, I wrote another book that's never been published, and I, I talk about pain and suffering in that other book, which hopefully will get published at some point. I, I haven't finished. <laughs> I finished writing it. I never got it published. Now I can actually publish it on my own if I need to, and yeah. um, but I need to revise it. But anyway, one of the things I put in there was that there is no such thing as unbearable pain. What we call unbearable pain is bearable until it gets to a point where God either has the area of pain go numb or Mm -hmm. we die. You know, it's kind of interesting. 
death, in that sense, is a way of getting out of unbearable pain. And uh, God, in his grace, has allowed us to get up to a certain point, but then he knows that, no, that's too, too much. I'm going to stop it. And so either he will have the area of our body go numb, or he will take us out of this life and into his I know we've, we've, we've probably all read these stories of the near-death experiences that, that people have, and that's one of the features is that they're in some terrible accident where you would imagine they would be just in constant pain. But what, what happens is that they somehow they're outside of their, their body and they see the situation, but they're not, they're not in pain themselves. Right. I, I actually read a book by uh, a man who was a uh, prisoner of war in North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And uh-huh. uh, he said, and, and they were tortured actually quite often. Uh, because Ooh. that's just what happened up there. And he said, um, I never in my life felt so close to God as during that time when I was in the, as a prisoner of war, prisoner of war in North Vietnam. He said, I came back and uh, news people would ask me, you know, are you angry against your captors? And he said, that didn't make sense because this was the best time of my life in one sense, that he felt closer to God than any other time in his life. And he said, it wasn't just me. I don't know anyone who lost their faith during that time. And as a matter of fact, almost everyone that I knew had gained or strengthened their faith during that time. So God is so powerful, he's able to turn things around and take what appears to be a horrible, horrible situation, which in one sense really is a horrible, horrible situation right. because he has given us free will, but it's not a free will that that goes beyond what he is able to recover and what he is able to uh, bring good out of. And well, that's that gives an amazing, me, amazing God. You know, that gives me a lot of hope because when I was going through my time of, um, of doubting, I think you pretty much have grown up in the church and have always had a faith of one kind or another. But when I was going through my time of, of doubting, I just kept wondering, how can, I, how can I believe in the good God in the midst of all of this mm-hmm. suffering that goes on in the world? And then how can I believe in a good God if this, if this God supposedly puts people in hell forever? Because I had no good answers to either of those questions, mm. it made me just kind of despair about being spiritual because the only option I knew about as far as believing in God was the God of Christianity. And the God of Christianity, as we were talking about earlier, at that point seemed cruel to me uh, mm. for one reason or another. But then, um, and, you know, and especially would imagine situations where people, you know, so somebody is not, is not a Christian and then they have something terrible. I mean, horrible happened to them. They're murdered some terrible way. Mm. And then after that, they go to hell forever. Uh, because right. they hadn't accepted Jesus. And I just couldn't put all that together. But then once I started on, on my journey in believing in a, in, a, in a truly good God, and I found out that, that it was possible for me to be a Christian and to believe in the God who would finally heal all of the hurts that were allowed in creation some way that, that God knew how to do that, well, then that, that solved two problems for me. It solved the problem of pain and suffering and that God allows no pain or suffering to go past a certain point and that is mm-hmm. able to heal everything that God allows and that hell is not a, um, 
Hell is not a place of endless torment, but a place of enduring correction. That's how some of the early mm. church fathers, enduring correction. And, and at that point, that's where the people that have perpetrated these evils come to a full awareness of what exactly they've done. And maybe God, even in those situations, has ways of them understanding from a, a more personal level, from the perspective, even they're able to maybe take on the perspective of the persons that they wounded so they, mm. they can really understand the pain that they caused. Once I was able to put all that together, I realized, you know, I have now I have a God who is completely good, all good, all powerful, mm. all loving, all merciful. And this God is is my ultimate parent and has put something of God's own good goodness inside of me. And so what's happening is I'm in the process of becoming the unique child of God that I was always intended to be. Once I put all that together, then there was nothing but goodness. Everything, mm. everything all of a sudden clicked and it started working for me. But then the problem I had was when I would tell my good news about the God I'd come to believe in, they would say, well, are you sure that's Christian? I mean, you mm. know, cause the Bible, the Bible talks about has some, has some passages that I thought maybe we might talk about a little bit, George, because mm -hmm. you talk about them in the book. Like, for instance, somebody might say to me, well, what about that time that that Jesus told about the parable of the rich man and and Lazarus? I mean, that sounds like the rich man is in hell across, a, 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 you know, a chasm that nobody can can get across. Uh, what about that one? What about that one, George? What about the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus? How do you think about that parable? Or that story. Well, that's a very good one. That that's one of the ones that, like you said, everybody brings up the rich man and Lazarus because the rich man is uh, in hell, according to most translations, and uh, there's a great chasm between him and Lazarus, uh, right. and where God is in Abraham's bosom, and uh, he's in pain and agony and just wants a little water. And the interesting right. thing, by the way, about that man is that he's actually somewhat concerned about his brothers because he says, well, send Lazarus to tell my brothers that uh, the, the terrible situation here so that they won't come here. And mm -hmm. um, but it's too late. So, yeah, I understand that's a definitely a, a bad situation. A couple of things to keep in mind, though, with that. Number one, the rich man wasn't in hell. According to the original Greek text, he's in Hades which unfortunately often is translated as hell in the King James Version. Um, in the more recent versions, none of them translate them as hell. Um, interestingly, the NIV, original yeah. NIV, translated it as hell. When they came out with a revision in 2011, they changed it back to Hades. Yeah, that was, one of the reasons, about that was one of the reasons that I used the <clears throat> NIV in, in my book was to show, well, mm. here's just a good example of it, that readers of the NIV up to 2011 would have thought that the rich man was in hell. But then those same readers, if they went out and bought a new uh, NIV in say, 2012, they would go back and they'd say, wait a second, the rich man isn't in hell anymore. He's in Hades. How did that happen? Right. And the interesting thing too about that is that Revelation specifically says that death in Hades will give up the dead that are in them. So if Hades gives up the dead that are in it, well, then obviously it can't be forever. That, right. That, and that it also, me, it, get, it gets thrown into the lake of fire too. 
Right. It gets thrown into the lake of fire. But before it gets thrown into the lake of fire, it gives up the dead that are in it. So the dead cannot be there forever suffering because Hades gives up the dead that are in it. Secondly, it's a parable. Uh, some people don't think it is, but I think that, that it, it uh, is a parable. It it uh, starts out with the same kind of idea. There once was a man, uh, and right. in the whole section in there, 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 you've got that. It's a fictional story that Jesus wanted to use to explain a spiritual truth. And I, I liken it in my book to a modern reader, or a modern speaker rather, quoting C.S. Lewis and saying that uh, Aslan on the stone table is like Jesus on the cross. Well, nobody thinks that Jesus had four legs and a mane and, right. uh, that he was, and that the cross was made out of stone. He's using an example. He, he wants to explain something, a spiritual truth, by using an example from a literary situation. And interestingly, the rich man and Lazarus was a literary parable, proverb, story that was used in the ancient world about a, I can't remember, it wasn't, it might have been a rich tax collector and the poor scholar. And the interesting mm-hmm. thing about that is that in the original parable, the poor scholar would have been the hero, right? And the rich tax uh-huh. collector would have been the, the bad guy. Well, Jesus turns the tables because the, the people that he's talking to at that particular time are a rich Pharisee. And these people right. were actually literally dressed in fine linen and purple and ate in luxury, every, lived in luxury every day. So they suddenly now become the bad guys in Jesus's version of the parable, whereas the poor man, the beggar, Lazarus, becomes the hero. And so it just kind of flipped it around. And I think that was a brilliant move on Jesus's part to bring them to the point where they understood, hey, you guys are not understanding what's going on here. God is not this, this wicked uh, being. And even if someone comes back from the dead, you're not going to believe him, which is what the, the, the message of that parable is, that even if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe. And indeed, well, I think that, that was exactly what happened. Yeah, that, that helps me to understand uh, when I, that, that opened a lot of um, understanding for me when I realized that, oh, well, this is kind of a, it's, it sort of fits in more of kind of a folk tale uh, kind of genre, right. uh, that the kind of stories that people would have told back then. And so what's interesting is the way that Jesus is talking about the experience of the rich man in Hades and what's happening and what lesson is to be taken from the story. And the point of that is not to, is not to make some kind of detailed exposition about what exactly happens in the afterlife, because this was all happening right in the current, right, sort of right in the current moment and talking about Hades and which was not a place of everlasting torment, whatever it was. That's not what it, that's not what it was. But when we're talking about everlasting torment, you know, sometimes people will say, yeah, well, I I like all of this about Jesus, you know, being here to finally save us all. But what, you know, there's this parable of the sheep and the goats in the 25th chapter of Matthew. And now that one is, is clear because it says there that the goats go away (laughs) into eternal torment whereas the sheep go into eternal life. So, you know, it, it has to be it has to be one or the other. You're either in eternal life or in your eternal torment. And if the torment, if we say that the torment doesn't last forever, then we have to say that the life doesn't last forever. So then it almost makes it like in order for there to be eternal life, there has to be eternal torment. It's like those have to balance. In order for us to be living forever, people have to be tortured forever. 
And it has to work yeah. out that way for some reason. Yeah, that is uh, an argument, by the way, that St. Augustine used back in right. the fifth century by saying, if life is eternal, then punishment must be eternal. Or if punishment is not eternal, then life cannot be eternal. Yeah. Well, what I say is that, for, well, first of all, the word eternal there is actually, this translated eternal is the word ion in the Greek, which means yes. it does not mean never ending. What it means is the end is not known. Uh, an example of that would be if you're standing on a beach and you look out on the horizon, you know, out over the ocean, uh, from that perspective, it looks like the ocean goes on forever, but mm -hmm. it doesn't. And you know it does. You just don't know where it ends. And depending on where you're standing and how far the, you know, what direction you're looking at, it could go on right. for a very long way or only a relatively short uh, distance. Um, that word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament, for Jonah. Uh, Jonah says, uh, to the roots of the mountain I sank down, uh, the earth barred me in forever. Well, yeah, in Hades, it, says, it also says he talks about, well, being in Sheol. Yeah, right, in Sheol, right, which is the yeah. Hebrew version of, of Hades, right? Yeah. But what it says there is, you know, I'm going to be in this forever, but he wasn't. He was only in there for three days, but he didn't know how long he was going to be there. That's also used for the uh, a number of times in the Old Testament when it talks about the statutes that the Lord has in the temple or the tabernacle, the garments that uh, Aaron and his uh, sons wear. Uh, are to be eternal statutes. Well, they didn't last forever, and they were never intended to last forever. They were intended to last until the new covenant came that would surpass the old covenant. And interestingly, yeah, so some... the, the NIV doesn't use uh, eternal. They're not eternal statutes in the NIV or most modern translations. Now they're lasting ordinances because they understand that it doesn't mean forever. It just means short or long time period of time, the end of which is not known. So that's and also, really a key thing there. In, in, back in that time too, they had a sense that, that God was eternal, but that God, but, that, but that God instituted the ages in order to accomplish God's purposes. So there were ages in the past and there were ages yet to come. So it, one right. way of looking at that, it could be that in the, in the coming age, after this age, some will go into eternal, uh, we'll talk about that word, punishment or correction, uh, and then some will go directly into eternal life. So say a little bit about that word that gets, you talked about that word a aeonian for the, that gets translated uh, eternal, which is not, not always a, a good translation for that. There's another word there that gets translated as, as torment, but it's, a, they'd have some nuance, nuances to it, to it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, get, just getting back, though, to the ion portion of that, it's not, uh, it, it's, never, it's not never ending. It means the end is not known. What Augustine said was the two have to be the same. But really what it's talking about is divine life or divine punishment. It, what you just said, it's punishment in the age to come or the ages to come, depending on what, how it's used. If I, uh, the illustration I use in, in my little uh, booklet, How Wide Are Heaven's Doors?, is uh, if Goliath fought David in front of Mount Everest, you could honestly say a tall man is fighting against, or is fighting in front of a tall mountain. Right. Right. A tall man in a tall mountain. But nobody would ever think that the man and the mountain were the same size. 
the word tall is an adjective and it, re- it gets its meaning from what it's referring to. In the first case, to a man, Goliath, and in the second case, to a mountain, which is very, very high. So the same right. thing with eternal life or eternal punishment. It's really divine uh, in the age to come kind of life or the age to come kind of punishment. So one is referring to punishment, one's referring to life. They're two totally different things, just like a man and a mountain are different. So life and punishment in the age to come are different. Well, talk about that that punishment, that, that punishment word. Yeah. Punishment, I can't remember the actual word in Greek, but... Colossin, uh, Colossin, Colossus. Right, Colossae. It's used of uh, pruning things. It's it's relating to ruin when you... uh, It doesn't mean constant torment. It was used originally, I think, for a person who was checking coins to make sure that it was... They were real coins instead of fake coins for counterfeiting kinds of things. And so it was... And there was the idea of... There was the idea of... There was the idea of pruning too as well in the... Right, pruning or testing was kind of the idea there, that uh, you're testing it to make sure that it's good and uh, you're pruning it to get rid of the junk that's there. So uh, the purpose of God's pruning, the purpose of hell really is... uh, to prune the people and and bring out what's good, get rid of the sin that destroys us and that hurts us and uh, that makes us something that we were never intended to be in order that we could become what God intended us to be uh, become in the first place. Uh, well, one of the things one of the th- on. one of the things that I um, uh, that also helped me with this is in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about, there he refers to hell and he warns people about that, especially as as the way they treat others, that if you treat others poorly, you're in in danger of the judgment of hell. And that's the word Gehenna is translated there as hell, which is a little different idea than than Hades. But in in that fifth chapter of Matthew, also what Jesus says is that if you've got somebody has something against you and they're taking you to court, you need to you need to get things right with them before you appear mm. before you appear in front of the judge. Because if you appear in front of the judge and he pronounces you guilty, then you'll have to he'll hand you over to the jailer, and then you're going to be in prison. And then Jesus makes it clear until you pay the last penny. So the mm. the idea is that somehow uh, by the by the things that we leave unresolved in this in this world that there, there may be some kind of consequence that we have to pay down to the last, you know, down to the last penny. And uh, so could you talk about, you know... Yeah, part of it is that it's the word until. <laughs> You'll be there until. That immediately says it's not never-ending because you're there right. for... However it works out, you're only there until something happens. Yeah, and that Gehenna, can you and, say a little bit something about yeah, Gehenna? Gehenna is an amazing word because we've gotten... It's the only word that most modern translations now still translate by the word hell. Because it's interesting, Mm -hmm. there are actually four different words in Scripture that are translated by the single word in English, hell, depending on what version you get, Um, especially in the King James Version. You've got Sheol, which you had mentioned in the Old Testament, Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Then you have its equivalent, which is Hades in the New Testament. You have... uh, uh, this word Tartarus, which is only used once um, in the New Testament. And then you have Gehenna, which is the one now that almost everybody, uh, all the translations still use as hell. But Gehenna was a specific location. 
That's what's really amazing about it. It was a location that actually existed when Jesus was telling the Sermon on the Mount and when he was here on earth. In fact, one statement that people will often hear is, well, Jesus talked about hell more than any other New Testament writer. That's true, but it's also not true. It's true in the sense that he used the word Gehenna 11 out of 12 times in the New Testament. So therefore, he used that word more often than any other New Testament writer. But what did he mean by the word Gehenna? Well, he was referring to a specific location. It was probably used as a dump at the time of Jesus. It had been a place, uh, it was the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom in the Old Testament, a place where they had child sacrifice. And it was a horrible, horrible place. And then I think it was Josiah, I think that's who it was, came and he defiled it and uh, got rid of it because this was just such a, a wicked thing that the people were doing. And as a result of that, it became the common dump of the city. And they would throw the corpses of, of criminals would be thrown out there. Um, it was a place uh, that was putrid. Uh, the fires would keep on burning there to get rid of the, the stench and the, um, the corruption that was involved in it. But it was a, a specific location. For a long time, I was trying to figure out, well, is there anything in our modern time that I could think of that, that relates to what that would be like? And the illustration that came to my mind was Auschwitz. If you say someone, uh, Auschwitz is is a place that was representative of wickedness, of pain, of uh, horrible life in this world that existed, what, 75 or more years ago in Nazi Germany. It still exists today as a museum and in the memories of people that actually knew it firsthand. So if you talk about Auschwitz, What comes to somebody's mind is a specific location. Well, that was what was happening with Jesus when he said Gehenna. They thought of a specific location. And what did it remind people of? It reminded people of the horrible death, uh, corruption, a terrible place that was just outside of Jerusalem, and that the, the bodies of these people would be thrown there like common trash for a person who was a Jew, that was horrific. In fact, for the Pharisees, they were honoring the dead. That was something that was very important to them. In in, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that uh, if a man has a, a thousand children, I think, I can't remember what it was, it has a thousand, something like that. But anyway, but does not have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. Yeah, the, the idea proper is burial. A proper burial is very, very important. So who was Jesus talking to when he was using these this term Gehenna? He was talking with the religious leaders primarily or the religious people. And for them, the idea of being th- having their body thrown out into a dump and treated like a common piece of trash was horrific. That was terrible. And that was the point Jesus wanted to make. So if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out so that you won't experience the the negative consequences of having your body, the shame of uh, having your body thrown into a a dump uh, like a common piece of trash. That was the point that he was trying to make. And and he made it very, very powerfully with that word Gehenna, which was a specific mm -hmm. location that people could go to. And that was also associated in the Old Testament with times of, of like national judgment. And when I studied Jesus, one of the things that that I found out was that uh, when he was warning people in the Sermon on the Mount, he does a lot of warning them about, you know, this path of evil that you're 
that you're on and you're, you're evil and you're, and you're violent and you know, you're not loving your enemies, you're leading people uh, toward an inevitable catastrophe that you're, this mm. is all going to build up. And Jesus predicted that there would be a time that would come within the genera- his, his own generation where there would be this, uh, where what would happen would there actually would be great death and destruction that would come on Jerusalem and bodies actually would end up in Gehenna. Right. And that, and that, you know, that it, happened in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman yeah. soldiers. Just knowing the whole context of, of all of that and how it could and how it related to a coming catastrophe, a coming judgment catastrophe that Jesus mm. saw on the horizon, you know, that really helped me to just gain, you know, gain a whole, a whole, a whole other context for what Jesus is talking about in that judgment language. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, the the verse in Ecclesiastes, it says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So that's really kind of the the idea that that was in the mind of the people who heard what Jesus was saying is, uh, this is horrific because I need to have a good burial. I need to be remembered as a good person or as an important person or as whatever they wanted to be remembered as. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was going to be destroyed by their sinfulness. When it talks about destruction, that's a big word. Uh, destruction is, is a word that comes up a lot in the, in these, in, in the idea of judgment that we, that we find in the New Testament. There's one passage that you do a good job with. It's in 2 Thessalonians. Mm. And it talks about the, the concept that that the people that are wicked, at least the way it's translated in most English translations, is that is that the the people that are wicked are they are going to suffer uh, everlasting everlasting destruction, which will move them away from God forever. It sounds like uh, in that passage, yeah. and so some people are concerned about that passage. Yeah, that's a that's a one that is often brought up. Uh, the NIV actually says that they will be. Um, It'll be everlasting destruction and shut out from the uh, the hand of God presence. or something like that. Yeah, some the shut presence, out from the right, presence. Shut of out the from Lord. the presence of God. Um, yeah. and uh, it's just mistranslated. It's really kind of sad at that point. Number one, the word everlasting or eternal in that verse just means it's the the same word I own that does not mean never ending. It just means the end is not known. The word punishment that is uh, used there means ruin. Um, it's used for the, uh, the wineskins that are ruined. If you put in new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins will be ruined. And that's what it's talking about. And then the, the shut out, it's, the, it's a, a word in Greek, uh, a little preposition from. What it means is these people will, be, will experience the, the divine uh, ruin coming from the hand of God or the presence of God. So that, and if you look in the context, it's really talking about how these um, Thessalonians believers have been hurt, uh, hurt by other people who have uh, been unkind to them and uh, treated them poorly. And they will experience divine ruin that comes from the presence of God. It's not being shut out from the presence of God, right? So, it's yeah, coming a, from it's coming from God. It's a ruin or a judgment that's, that's coming, that's coming, um, that's coming from God. You know, one of the right. and it doesn't talk thing. about never ending 
punishment. It's just talking about God's going to judge them. And God does well, judge. I mean, there is something about God's judgment that, that is real for sure. Okay. Well, okay. So what's, what, if, what if somebody was to say, okay, George, well, but then the Bible talk about an unpardonable sin, something that you can do that, um, that God would never, ever forgive. Yeah, that's a, that's a big, big deal for sure. Um, in fact, there have been people that have actually committed suicide because they thought that they have nothing else. I mean, they've already committed the unpardonable sin, and so therefore they might as well just die and go to hell because um, that's yeah, just that's, that's the, that there's no or, way of getting out of it now. Right. Or they have totally lost their faith because they assume that they've committed the unpardonable sin, so why don't I just go out and uh, do all the wicked things that I can do because... Um, I might as well do that because I have nothing to lose. And there's no, no way that I can get back. Uh, those are strong words. And, and interestingly, it's Jesus who tells him that because he talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what it's right. all about. It's whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven uh, because he's guilty of an eternal sin. Whoa, that's really pretty. Yeah. Pretty well, how do, you, how do you think about that one? Well, uh, first is, again, in some of the modern translations, it says he will never be forgiven. That's not what's in the original Greek. The word never is not there. It just means that he will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, there are not only one age to come. There are ages, according to Scripture. Paul talks about prior ages, future ages, uh, the current age. There are ages to come. What blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is really all about, it's attributing to Satan what is in reality God's work. It, it, it was a, a situation where Jesus cast out a demon, and some of the Pharisees came and said, ah, you're casting him out by the power of Satan. So mm -hmm. instead of casting this demon out by the power of God, they attributed it to the power of Satan. Well, as long as you are saying no to God, as long as you're saying that, that whatever is happening in my heart, this conviction of sin is coming is not really from God. You're denying it. Well, you can't, you can't experience forgiveness because it's not going to happen, whether that's in this age or in an age to come. However, when a person recognizes that they need the grace of God and the forgiveness that comes through Christ, then at that point, they can be forgiven. The key is, as long as you say no to God and keep resisting, well, then you can't be, experience forgiveness. But once you stop forgiveness or stop resisting and experience, then you can experience that forgiveness. Um, okay. That's well, kind of the key well, well, at that point. What about, what about where the, doesn't the New Testament talk about people who forfeit their soul? And so if you, if you forfeit, if you forfeit your soul, that means, that means you, you know, you lost it. And it, it doesn't that, that kind of sounds like your soul is unrecoverable at that point. Yeah, it does. And according to the English words, again, it really sounds bad. But that word soul, it's suke in Greek, and it means soul, but it also means life. It's talking about, in fact, in that same verse, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, previous use of the same word is translated as, as life. It's either the, the previous verse or the same verse, um, but it's translated as life. Uh, someone who forfeits his life is what Jesus is really talking about. If you're pursuing a sinful direction, um, then you're forfeiting your life. It was interesting. I was in the subway in New York when I was writing that section of my book, and yeah. uh, I saw this sign that said something about uh, pursuing trivial things. 
And I thought, yeah, that's really what's happening is that people pursue trivial things. And as a result of that, they lose their life, what they're really made to be, their their purpose for living. And so, you know, if you are are pursuing um, an immoral lifestyle, then you're losing the, the fact of a, a close relationship with a woman who is your wife or with your children. I can't tell you how deeply it hurts me when I see people that I know who have abandoned their children in order to go off after some new woman. I, I was talking with a friend of mine a number of years ago, and it was just tragic. He had decided that he was going to uh, leave his wife and move in and live with this other woman. And mm-hmm. so he did that for a while. And then he said to me one day, he said, you know, George, it's no different than it was with my original wife. It's the same thing. And at one point, the new woman that he moved in with kicked him out. And I said, oh, how tragic that was. He gave up a close relationship with his wife and a close relationship with his children for a fling that was only right. temporary. That's, what's ta- that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, if you are pursuing a sinful direction, you'll forfeit the life that God could be, that God wants you to be experiencing in terms of this world here, not in the, uh, the, the future eternal state at all. Well, some people talk about the idea, uh, you know, they don't, they, you know, they don't believe in the eternal torment doctrine, but they do believe mm-hmm. that, it, that, that you can forfeit your, in, in eternity, you can forfeit your eternal existence so that your, your soul will perish. And they look at John 3, 16, and they, and they, um, and they read it that way, that, that those who, who believe are the ones who are, you know, who are receiving eternal who receive eternal life and the ones who don't believe, then they perish. And that sounds like an, an end point. How do, how do you deal with that one? Yeah, it's called uh, annihilation or um, what's the other word? Uh, conditional conditional immortality. Uh, immortality, yeah. Yeah, conditional immortality, meaning that uh, you can have eternal life if something happens, usually, you know, if you accept Christ or whatever. Uh, if you don't, you'll just be extinguished as out of existence completely. I liken it to uh, when I was in seminary back in the early 70s, that was an issue that was really controversial. Uh, it had just kind of come up and there was uh, at least one professor that I knew uh, that I had that actually held to that position. And um, that was an unpopular one, but it was just beginning to get something that would be possibly accepted. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is because you can't believe that this God who created all of mankind is going to condemn 75, 90%, whatever it happens to be, of the people that he created to never-ending conscious suffering. I mean, that is just horrific. You know, how can you believe in a God like that? That's a cruel being that, uh, or a weak being, one of the two, that it's just, he's not God. And so people try to come up with some other alternative. And so the idea of, well, maybe he doesn't consciously torment them, maybe he just extinguishes them. And so the everlasting destruction was meaning it's not punishment, it is just destruction. You know, they're going to be right. uh, annihilated completely. Yeah, and that was in that um, and that that became something that allowed uh evangelicals to say, you know, well, oh, I I I believe in 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 hell. I just think that the end of those who are in hell is is an ultimate perishing, not an eternal torment. And and for them, that was a big improvement. It was. And it was, I, I see it as a stopgap because they couldn't handle the one, but they, the idea of, of uh, universal salvation was not even on the, on the mindset for them. It, it wasn't on the horizon. It was 
not even there. So they didn't even think about that. Well, that has now become a legitimate minority view within the, at least in the evangelical world and within the Christian world kind of in general. That's sort of the legitimate minority view. Whereas yeah, it's, it's like the, it's self- like the, it's like the, the, the okay, so the legitimate uh, alternative to eternal torment is, is an, is annihilation, but they didn't, you know, but, you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago, they didn't even have the opportunity to think of a universal salvation or a universal restoration. But now what's happening is that there are, uh, there are some in the evangelical world that are saying, well, you know what, it, it turns out you could make a good, you can make a good biblical argument for this universal restoration too. So maybe we should start allowing there. So there's been some little opening that's even been allowed, uh, allowed for that recently. That's correct. Um, and I see actually universal restoration as the, what was back when I was in seminary in the early seventies or actually late seventies. Um, that's where annihilation was then. That's where universal salvation is now. And I think that at some point it will become much more acceptable. But anyway, getting back to the whole annihilation idea, to me, you know, it's possible, but it still makes God a very weak God. Uh, he fails. That's the bottom line. You know, Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. Unfortunately, most of the lost will never be found. They're going to be annihilated. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But he can't really bring that to pass, so he just gets rid of them. You know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of a, it makes God weak and he's not cruel, which is where the, I think the, the issue was at, for most of those people at the time, but he certainly is weak. I mean, God well, doesn't you know, mean you, anything. He just, he's it, the it, defeated deity. Well, and you brought, brought that up that, you know, that in, in the, kind of the evangelicalism that I was, and I didn't grow up going to an evangelical church, but I grew up in a place where that kind of evangelical thinking was just sort of in the, in the water, you know, it was just mm. everywhere. So you don't have to go really go to church, to know about it because your friends talked about it and people talked about it. But the idea wasn't just that, um, that there was this hell of eternal torment that, that was out there, but it was also that Jesus had specifically said that there were very few people that were going to make it to eternal life. Mm. Uh, because it, there's just a small gate and a narrow wor- road, and so wide is the road that leads to destruction. And so, basically, what what they were saying is, yeah, most uh, what the, that's what Jesus said is that most people that live are going to go down this wide road uh, to hell, which is going to last forever. But you know what we want you to do is we want you to think about being one of those few people that will take the small gate and the narrow, you know, the narrow path, and that you'll then you'll get to go on to eternal life. So just a very few people out of all the people that, you know, that ever lived, were going to make it. And, and whereas the vast majority of humanity was going to go into this in it, you know, back at the time uh, when I was growing up, they just said hell, which was eternal, eternal torment. So can you give a little perspective on that? What Jesus may have been talking about that uh, there when he talked about that narrow, that the, the small gate and that narrow road. Yeah, the the small gate and the narrow road that lead to life um, and the wide gate that leads to destruction. Uh, He's not talking about the afterlife there. He's talking about life in this world. In fact, it's interesting. One of the questions that Jesus' disciples ask him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Is Mm -hmm. actually, again, mistranslated. The original Greek means, 
Lord, are, there, are they few in number, those who are being saved? What's happening is Jesus is talking about, or the disciples and Jesus are talking about those who at that time were entering into the kingdom of God, becoming a part of the uh, followers of Christ. Uh, you got to remember, the king had arrived. So his kingdom is now at hand. And so right. am I, how many are going to be in the king? How many are, are currently coming into the kingdom? And he said, well, it's a narrow gate. You know, you got to be careful about this because wide is the gate that leads to destruction or a, a, a wasted, ruined life, just like we were talking before. Yeah. Whereas narrow is the gate that leads to a life that is truly productive. He's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about life in this world. To me, you just have to look at how many people are all wrapped up with trivial things. Once again, it's this trivial idea of, you know, I've got the biggest house or I make uh -huh. the the most money, or I drive the nicest car. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder, you get some of these super wealthy people, they literally could not spend the money that they own. I mean, Jeff Bezos, there's no way he could spend if he wanted to all this money. And so he's going to die. He's going to leave it to his children or to somebody or something or whatever it is. And he doesn't know what's going to happen after um, this life is occurring. And yet he spends all this time on sometimes trivial things. He ended up getting a divorce from his wife. He had to give her $150 billion or something like that because of the divorce, but he still had so many more billions of dollars left over. And it's like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're, you're spending all this time wasteful on trivial things that you could be using that for something significant, accomplishing great, great things. My wife and I were in uh, Newport, Rhode Island many years ago. Um, uh -huh. It's a, it's a wonderful place to go. If you ever want to go and just see some beautiful mansions, they were built in the like 1840s through the 1880s or something like that. There are these gigantic, beautiful mansions that were used for six weeks in the summer. That was it by wealthy, wealthy people that were in New York uh, that came out there. Anyway, we went into the one that was uh, by uh, the Vanderbilt mansion. It's called the Breakers. Beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous in what you see there. Um, and uh, as they were going around in this tour, they were talking about the, the man who uh, uh, did it, who I think was Cornelius Vanderbilt II. I can't, I, I'm not, it may not be the second, but anyway, he was this uh, wealthy man. And he was noted for a couple of things. Number one, he was noted for yachting. He had uh, a number of yachts that he had, and he was you know, a really good yacht person. And then he mm -hmm. was also noted, and this was kind of interesting, he was noted as the person who uh, invented the game of contract bridge. Well, bridge is a big deal, right? I mean, a lot of people play, play bridge all around the country and around the world. But I thought about it, and I thought, if Cornelius Vanderbilt II there stands before God, and God says, Cornelius, I gave you phenomenal wealth. What'd you do with it? And he says, I invented a card game. <laughs> like, oh, wow. You know, and I yachted. Really, that's really wonderful. Yeah, and yachting. You know, I bought a bunch of yachts and I invented a card game. And he could have used his money for something truly significant in terms of helping people, of doing something really phenomenal. Um, Andrew Carnegie was noted as a person who said, he who dies rich dies disgraced. Kind of interesting. Now, rich is obviously a relative term right. in that situation. We're talking about financially. But, right. But he who dies rich dies disgraced because what he thought was important was to give away his money. So you see a lot of these Carnegie libraries. You see Carnegie mm -hmm. Mellon uh, University. A lot of these Carnegie kinds of things. He was the person that started 
foundations to give money away. So, so the thing that's going on here, something significant. The thing that's going with the with the small gate and the narrow road is that the kingdom is now here. And, and when you look in the Greek, there those verbs are in the active tense. It's something that is happening right now. And some people are are taking the the the, the wide path to perishing, and then some people are actually listening to Jesus and getting the idea. And they're saying, uh, no, we want to be receiving right now this eternal life that you're talking about that's in your kingdom. And that that's what, that was what was going on. But in just right in front of him, Jesus is just making an observation that there's most people are still in this lifetime, even though I'm proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God now present, they're walking the wide path that leads to destruction. Right. But what they're doing is pursuing trivial things. Uh, I said right. in my book, you, you simply need to look around at the trivial things that people pursue. The biggest house, the newest car, whitest teeth, most pay Facebook friends, latest iPhone, to see the truth of that statement. Uh, that's and really George, the key. Well, you know, people are just doing all these trivial things instead of something what, what, really what, worthwhile. What about mm -hmm. this? You know, you talked about what is God, what is God up to? And uh, you're saying that God is up to loving uh, God is up to loving everybody and wanting everybody to have a good outcome. But there are certain places in the Bible where it seems like, well, God doesn't love everybody. As a matter of fact, he, he chooses to love some, but he chooses to hate others. He chooses to, he chooses to open some people's heart and he chooses to hard, harden other people's heart. So there's this passage in Romans where Paul talks about Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. And then there's that part in the Old Testament about God hardening uh, Pharaoh's heart. And so what do you do about those types of things? That's a good question. Um, two different questions there. Uh, the, in, um, in Romans, where Paul talks about hardening, um, the, the, or Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's actually referring to a, a passage in the Old Testament where they're talking about the nation of Esau and the nation of Jacob. The, the, the descendants of, of those two uh, nations, Edom and Israel. And so what he's doing is saying, I'm choosing one over the other. It's just like when Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, your uh, brothers and sisters, and even your own life, you cannot be one of my disciples. Well, he's not talking about hating them because obviously he wants you to honor your father and your mother. He wants you to love your neighbor as yourself um, and even love your enemies. So he's not talking about hatred in that, in that sense. It's... Uh, a way of, I guess, I think the, they usually call it hyper, hyperbole, a hyperbolic <laughs> way of saying uh, you've got to choose between one or the other. And yeah. so God chose to use Jacob, who was the younger son, instead of Esau, who was the older son, to be the one who would carry on his promises. And So it's really about who God is, who God is choosing uh, to carry on the work. That's correct. It's choice for service not choice for salvation. People often think about that. You know, God chooses people to salvation. No, he chooses them for service. So he so chose election to is use... about service. That's correct. It's service, not salvation. And so God chose to use the descendants of Jacob to be the instruments of his salvation to the world instead of Esau. And interestingly, I think it's really kind of fascinating. Throughout scripture, you're always seeing not the oldest, but the younger uh, of two siblings. So Moses is the younger brother of Aaron. David is the younger brother of 
Eliab, and he's, I think he's number seven or something like that in the family, as, as far as the brothers right. are concerned. Uh, Joseph is the younger brother of Reuben and uh, jo Judah and all these other people that are coming along. Um, and I thought about that one time and I thought, why? Because Jesus is in a sense, the younger human being, uh, the younger of Adam. Adam was the first and the second is Jesus. And it just seems to be a pattern that God is using throughout scripture that he chooses the younger to do something, but it's for service. It's not for salvation. And then when it comes to hardening Pharaoh's heart, the word there is to give courage. Uh, the same word is used. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's with Moses. Uh, God says to Moses, be strong and courageous. That, that same word there is that he's going to harden the heart to be strong. Well, that was what he did. That's what God did with Pharaoh. He hardened him so that Pharaoh wouldn't cave under the, the pressure of these 10 plagues that God brought so that God could demonstrate his power for all to see. So that if he had, you know, humbled himself uh, after the third plague, you wouldn't have seen the power of God at work in the same way. And so God gave him courage. He didn't harden it so that he would never uh, turn. And interestingly, the same word is used, by the way, of the magicians. They hardened their hearts against what uh, Moses was doing. And then after, I think it was the third uh, miracle or one of the, the miracles there, um, they decided to tell Pharaoh, hey, I think we're wrong. So they kind of caved under the pressure, but uh, God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. That's really what the word means at that point. Well, let's go ahead and um, we were in, we're in the Old Testament. Let's go ahead and move to the end, uh, to the end of the Bible, because there are a lot of people who will say, well, you know, if you want to find out how it all ends, all you got to do is just go to the book of Revelation because, you know, Genesis tells us how it all began. And the book of Revelation uh, is going to tell us how it all ends. And, and it ends with uh, there's this judgment scene and the book of life is opened. And if your name is in there, well, uh, you get to go into the New Jerusalem. And if not, then you're, you know, you're cast into the lake of fire. And then that's, <clears throat> you know, and that's it. So, so doesn't that, that kind of settle it? George, is, or is there another way that you look at the, that, how the book of Revelation ends up? Well, a couple of things about the book of Revelation. Number one, in, people don't really realize this. Everything in the book of Revelation occurs on earth. I mean, almost everything. You do have the lake of fire at the end, which is probably not in, uh, on the earth. But everything else, that's the plagues. You got um, you know, weather situations. You got d disease and torments and whatever is happening to people on earth. It's not in the afterlife. It's not really a book about what's happening in hell. It's a book about what's going to happen at, um, at some point on earth. And it's in very um, graphic details of what it talks about. The, the names that are written in the book of life, is it Abraham or Abram? Is it Saul or Paul? The, the names that are written in the book of life are the names of the people when they are transformed. And those are the ones so that when Saul becomes Paul, in the sense when he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, he's changed. There's a new Paul. It's the same person in one sense, but he's now been remade. Uh, he's a new creation in Christ. And so we're talking about a new creation in Christ. So, yeah, some of the people's names are not written in the book of life. But then when they turn and they follow Christ, 
whether it's in this world or in the world to come, the age to come, then their name will be found in the book of life. In fact, I think that, um, I can't remember exactly where it is in the book of Revelation. It talks about Christ coming with a new name. He's going to give you a new name. And so that's really what it's all about. It's a, a new creation. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, this was really fascinating. I was trying to figure out yeah. what was going on at one point. And uh, we were in a church service uh, and the pastor was preaching on something in Revelation. And my wife pointed this out to me. She said, George, did you hear what happens at the end of the book of Revelation? The invitation is given by Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. And it says at the very end of the book of Revelation that the, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, the gates will always be opened. And it has the tree of life that gives its fruit every month. So the fruit is always available. The water of the river of life comes out and flows through the new Jerusalem. And whoever is thirsty may come and drink it. But then the invitation is given to those outside the gate. And this is after, this is, this is, yeah, this is after we see them. I mean, the last time we saw these people, they had been cast into the lake of fire. And now these people seem to be outside of the, outside of the, the gates that are always open. And there's this invitation that's being given. That's exactly right. The new Jerusalem is now open for those who are outside the gate. Well, who's outside the gate? Just a, a couple of verses before, it says those who are in the, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the wicked people, they're the ones that are thrown into the lake of fire. They're the ones that are outside the gate. But what is the lake of fire? It's a lake of purifying fire. The Lord our God is a purifying fire. He's not a destructive, pain-giving fire that just, you know, the purpose of the lake of fire is not just to produce pain, the purpose of the lake of fire is to get rid of the sin, get rid of the junk that's accumulated in our lives or who we are so that the pure nature of who we are will come out. It's a purifying fire. And so those who are in the purifying fire, those are experiencing the call from the spirit and the bride. Well, the spirit is obviously God's spirit. Who's the bride? The bride are the believers throughout history who have already washed their robes who have already come in and taken of the fruit of the tree of life and drink uh, of the water of life and have come into the city. So it's those inside the city who are already believers calling to those outside the city who are in the lake of fire and inviting them to come in. So the invitation is always there. And that's very God hopeful. doesn't give you know, up one on of the, it. I, one of the things yeah. that, that I've said in my book, yeah. God's love is unconditional. God's power is irresistible. And he never gives up. That's the key. God never gives up. His love is un, unable to be resisted. His power is unable to be resisted. And he never gives up. So at the end of the book of Revelation, the offer is, off, is, is given there. So when the person has been in that lake of purifying fire and he's ready to experience the forgiveness that God gives, the grace that God provides for him or her, then he's able to come into the New Jerusalem take of the tree of life, drink of the water of life, and walk in and be in the presence of God and of his people. Well, it's an amazing thing when you, uh, when you get this perspective change and you start thinking, God, okay, God is love. And so uh, God is all powerful and mm. God knows what God is doing. God is all good. And when you start uh, finding out that there's this 
there's this way that you can put this all together and it all clicks together. It's like you have this paradigm shift and all of a sudden you're able to, you're, you know, you're able to see this differently and it's so exciting. But then the frustrating thing is that it's for somebody who, you know, who hasn't had that paradigm shift or hasn't known this way of, of thinking about it for them. I mean, it's like, you're looking at, you're looking at the same, that the same Bible, but you're seeing the verses differently. You're seeing other certain, some, sometimes you're looking at the same passage, but seeing different, seeing them differently, or you're finding other passages that they're not, you know, that, that they're not seeing. It's just a whole perspective change. And so one of the things that's been really great for me is, as I was going through all of this was I could find other people who were thinking the same thing. I was, you know, remember when I met you at, at conferences and we would start talking and mm. it's like, Oh, I've had that same thought too. Yeah. I've, I've had that same, I've, I've had that same experience too. And so one of the things that I've wanted to do with this podcast is sort of to invite people in to these conversations that I've been getting to have with, um, with you and other people. And if, and if people want to know more about, about all there's, there's even more that you cover in your book about these various passages, but what I wanted people to, to really know about you and your book is, you know, you're not, you're, you're obviously somebody who takes scriptures very seriously, uh, uh, authoritatively, and this is not mm. something, you know, you're playing fast and loose with the scriptures. You're, you've actually investigated all these scriptures in the original, in the original languages. And so I'm just glad that you, you, you've been able to share all of this and then we'll, we of, can have some further conversations. Yeah, I'd love to do that. It's always a delight to talk to you, David. It really is. Um, I, I think um, if you start looking at it from a positive perspective, it's like if you, in fact, I had uh, someone um, send me a, a note asking for some advice, and uh, she was concerned that about her husband. Um, she had been divorced once and uh, her new husband, she wasn't sure, is he being faithful or not? And, you know, she it was just kind of bothering her. And the thought that came to my mind was, well, think on good things. Don't look for the bad, look for the good. And um, she wrote back and said, oh, thank you. That's just so helpful. Well, the same thing is don't look for the bad things in scripture. Start looking for some of the good things about who God is. Uh, one of the things that I have said many, many times, when the angel came to announce the birth of the promised Savior, he did not say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for some of the people. He did not say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for most of the people. He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. In the, day, in, uh, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist, when he comes, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world not just takes away the sin of the people of Israel or the sin of some people, he takes away the sin of the world. When uh, Jesus was speaking to the, the uh, Samaritan woman's friends, uh, the people in the, in the town of uh, Sychar, he says, we can no we no they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The world. Yeah. The world. And Jesus It really says, is amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's amazing just all the things that you that you start seeing once you start looking for all the good positive attributes and aspects of God and you open yourself up. It's just amazing all the different things that just start popping out at you from the scriptures. Right. And that's what really is the key. Start looking to see, well, if it is possible, 
is there some kind of indication in Scripture that that is what the truth is? And it becomes overwhelming. And again, just looking back at the doctrine of God, who is God? If God is good, he's all-powerful, all-loving, and wise, he's going to accomplish his purposes. He specifically has said that he wants all people to be saved. He has specifically said that he's able to save all mankind. Um, and he specifically says that he will save all mankind. Because at the end of time, every knee will bow, every tongue will freely and joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's a positive, I mean, one of the things about this that is so, that's been so encouraging for me is once I really allowed myself to not just believe in God, but to believe in the true goodness of God, and started to believe that God, that we're in this creation and God is taking all, every one of us in this creation to a good place, then that, that made it so much easier for me to be positive in the midst of various struggles mm. in life. And I started looking at other people, everybody around me thinking, these are all my eternal brothers and sisters. I'm, we're all going to be reconciled to each other at one point. And then it just made me want to share my, my faith with them and say, you know, there's a way that you can live a beautiful life in this world and you can experience all of this goodness and hope and joy right now. You, we don't have to, you know, wait to the end of time when everything is finally reconciled. We can live in the hope of that right now and we can help other people come into that right now. And that became for me the the good news of the kingdom, the good news mm. about Jesus and something that I just really wanted to to tell people about. And through this podcast and getting to have discussions with you, I think this is one of the things that we're that we're able to do. And you've got uh, you've got some. If people want to search you online, you've got some really good videos online and some and some other things. And and I think we're going to continue to have some conversations. But for I think for right now, uh, we'll just kind of we'll just kind of leave it leave it with that about the um, about who is it that that God is. So one more time, George, mm. tell us who who do you believe God to be? God is not partial, loving some people, but choosing not to save others. He's not weak, able, uh, wanting to save all people, but unable to do that. He doesn't change, loving people while they're still alive in this world and being willing to forgive them. But then once they die, that's it. And he's not cruel, able to save all mankind but in the last analysis, not going to do it. His love is unconditional. His power yeah. is irresistible. And he never gives up on any of those he created in his image. That's a great God. And that's the God that I'm grateful to be able to worship. Well, thank you, George, uh, for uh, describing such a, a beautiful vision of God and, and for helping us, uh, helping us to go down this road together. Uh, this won't be the last time that we that we visit with, with each other. There's still so much for us to talk about. And, and God bless you and God bless everybody who's listening to this podcast to help you to believe that God truly is good, that God truly is with us and taking us to a good place. All right. Until next time, George, talk to you later. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world 
know about the greatest news ever announced.